I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Over the coming weeks, next few months, we're going to be studying together 1 Peter. This morning we'll be looking at the first five verses, which is just part of Peter's introduction to this letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Please give your attention to God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray before we consider God's word together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that we need not grope in the darkness for truth, for all the truth that we need has been given to us in your word. But we are still sinners. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be here among us, enabling us to understand your word. Help me, Lord, not to obscure or distort your word in any way. And, Lord, please be with everyone here this morning, that they might hear your word, that by your spirit they might understand your word, and that they might be changed by your word. Father, we are hungry, we are spiritually thirsty, and your word is real food. We come to be fed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're here. Finally. We moved into our new house in Park Forest yesterday. And by the way, a great big thank you for so many from the Oakwood family that came out to help us. And those who even, in leading up to the day of the move, helped us with food and other things. It's been a, a real encouragement to us, the way the church family here has not only helped us, but so warmly received us. So now, as we have our new house, we begin to ask the age-old question, when does a house become a home? There is a difference between a house and a home. In some ways, State College already feels like our home, and that's largely due to the warmth of this congregation. But, obviously, in many ways, it still feels very strange and foreign to us. But as I think back to where we came from, we moved here from the suburbs of Philadelphia, and we lived there almost 20 years. And yet... Still, after 20 years, it never quite 
felt like home. It was in many ways, and certainly we lived there longer than we ever lived anywhere else. But in many ways, I, when I think of home, I have to go back to where I was raised. I had the, unlike many children, I had the good uh, blessing of being able to grow up in the same house in the same location, didn't move the whole time I was growing up. So to me, the little town I grew up in in northwestern Pennsylvania will always be home in a sense in which no place I've ever lived since will ever be. But in many ways still, that's not home either. It certainly isn't anymore. So what are we talking about when we make a distinction like that? What is home and how is it different from where we live, no matter how long we've lived there? Home, I think the concept of home, the abstract concept of home is about, you know, for many, now I understand that there are some and there may well be many here this morning, that home is a negative thing. You have had a very bad, difficult home experience. But if you've had any kind of a decent upbringing, home is, you know, as a positive concept, it's about where you belong. It's about a place where you have a strong sense of identity, that your identity is wrapped up in that place somehow. It's a place where you're accepted. It's a place where you're significant. It's a place where you're loved. That's what home is. The longing to go home is one of the most powerful emotions that human beings experience. George Washington once said, I'd rather be at home on my farm than be emperor of the world. Maya Angelou, the poet, once wrote, I long as does every human being to be at home wherever I find myself. The author Herman Melville wrote, Life is a, vo- is a voyage that's homeward bound. And the famous journalist John Ed Pierce once wrote, Home is a place you grow up wanting to leave and grow old wanting to get back to. You know, it's striking then, if that's such a strong drive in in us, if that's such a strong desire, it's striking to me that when you read the first verse of this letter that Peter wrote to the church, he calls Christians to whom he writes, elect exiles of the dispersion. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are to see ourselves as exiles. What's an exile? Well, the word exile in Greek comes from, and if you translate it literally, it means a stranger in the midst. When we think of exiles, we think of foreigners living in a country country temporarily. Somebody who has temporary residence, somebody who's an alien in a particular culture. And so Peter says that's how we're to see ourselves in this world. We're foreigners. We're exiles. We're aliens. We don't belong. We don't fit in. We're in the world, but not of it. Peter's writing to Christians in what we would now call Turkey, the northern parts of Turkey, uh, the districts that he lists here are not the more populous southern parts of Turkey, but it's the northern parts of Turkey in that day, which were kind of the backwoods of Asia Minor, as it was called. And he's writing to 
both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's important to understand that as you as we go through it week by week, that he's writing to actually predominantly Gentile Christians, but also many Jewish Christians. And he says to them over in chapter 2, verse 11, just to show you that he carries this exile theme through the letter, over in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Life, to Peter, is a war. It's a battle. It's hard. Because you're sojourners and exiles. You're aliens where you live. It makes life very difficult. We stick out. We're strange. We're not like everyone around us. We don't think and we don't live the way the natives do. Life is to be a pilgrim's progress. We are pilgrims. We belong to another country and we're headed home. I think that this has become in my lifetime so much more real than maybe in my parents' or my grandparents' lifetimes. Because our culture, our culture, the American culture, has become much more foreign to us than it, than it used to be to prior generations. I mean, I'm not going to get to, into an argument this morning about whether our founding fathers were really Christians or not, but one thing that it's almost impossible to argue with is that the people who started this country, by and large, had a biblical worldview. That's how they saw reality, was through a biblical filter. That's not true anymore. Not even remotely true. Matter of fact, Marvin Alasky, who's uh, the editor, of, I guess that's his title, at World Magazine, he wrote in, a, in an article in World Magazine, he made the observation, and he's in a better position to make this observation than you or I would be with his contact with the church and with the culture around the country. His estimate is that about 10% of the American populace has a, what would, in, even in the most broad and general terms, could be described as a biblical worldview. 10%. And, of course, we're not saying that that 10% are all real, true, blood-bought, born-again Christians. We're just saying that 10% has a general biblical worldview. So, we don't fit in. We don't see the world the way the rest of the world sees the world. It's going to make us aliens. It's going to make us exiles. And it's not just that we're different. What the Bible makes clear is that not only are we different from the world around us, but the world is hostile to us because we're different. In Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, listen to how he prays for his church. He says, I have given them... Speaking to the Father, he says, I have given them, the church, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's why we're going to see as we go through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're going to see that suffering is one of the major themes of of the letter of 1 Peter. Why do we suffer? Because we're aliens. Because we're exiles living in a foreign culture which is at war with our Lord and our Master, our King. That's really what persecution is. And it takes many, many forms. And as our culture becomes less and less biblical in its thinking, the more the persecution will ramp up. 
We can expect that. So what makes us foreigners? What makes us different? We have to talk about that because what the world says makes us different is not what the Bible says makes us different. And unfortunately, too often, what the world sees as differences in the church are not really the important differences. As a matter of fact, some of those differences are downright misleading. The differences that Peter talks about, you're going to see very quickly, aren't about what kind of clothes we wear or how we cut our hair or how we talk. The differences go far deeper than that, far more significant, far more profound than that. And the plain truth is that we blend into our culture, most of us, way too much. Some of us stand apart from our culture, but in the wrong way, just by being weird, just by dressing out of fashion. That's not what the scriptures have in mind. So how are we foreigners? What does it mean to be exiles? What does it mean to be different? Well, that's what Peter spells out for us in these verses. What does it mean to be an exile? Well, first of all, he says it means that the source of our identity is foreign to this world. Where we draw our sense of identity from is radically different than how the rest of the world forms their sense of identity. Remember I said that your concept of home, what does it mean to be home, is based in your identity. Well, where does our identity come from? Who are we? And it's interesting that Peter immediately in verse 1 says he's writing to the church to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. A very important word in Peter's theological language. He's writing to the elect, literally the chosen ones. You are exiles because you're the chosen ones. You're exiles, you're aliens because you are elect. That's what makes us different at the very core. It's interesting that, again, is a label that Scripture applied up until this point in history, up until Peter's day, applied to Israel. Israel was the elect. Israel was the chosen ones. They were the ones set apart as holy from the nations by God. And Peter says, writing to all to the church, Jews and Gentiles, you are the elect You are the chosen ones. Look at the language he uses over in chapter 2. Turn over to chapter 2 for just a moment. Beginning in verse 9. Notice how the language he uses here is the language that was applied to Old Testament Israel, but now in Peter's day applies fully to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is the continuation of Israel. Israel was the Old Testament church. The church is the New Testament Israel. We are God's chosen people and recipients of all the promises given to God's chosen people. Therefore, like Israel, we are the kingdom of God. We're not the entirety of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is much bigger than the church. It goes to the far reaches of the universe. But we are the visible expression of the kingdom of God in this fallen world. We're God's kingdom under God's king. We are his chosen people. 
The saints of every age have lived as exiles. God's kingdom within other kingdoms. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, the writer here speaks of the hope of the Old Testament kingdom of God, Israel. He says, those saints all died, in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are pilgrims on a journey to our homeland, just like Old Testament Israel. We are God's chosen people, the visible representation of his kingdom. Well, what is the basis of of God's choice? Why did God choose us? Because we're so good-looking? Because we're so smart? Because we're so theologically correct? On what basis did he choose us? Well, that's what Peter refers to next. And he goes immediately, this is interesting to me, he goes immediately from talking about election, shall I say it, predestination, into the Trinity. And he mentions the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And talks about that as being the work that is on which our, the, our election, our being chosen, is based. It's upon what God has done based on the Father's plan. It's just fascinating to me because two of the most difficult doctrines in all of Scripture... Ones that all of us and theologians of every age have really wrestled with at a very deep level. Election and the Trinity are given immediately here by Peter as a basis for our identity, who we are. He doesn't bring these things up to get into a theological debate. He brings them up to say, this is who you are. You are the elect. And you are the result of the work of of the Father, Spirit, and Son. Therefore, you are the chosen. He talks about the foreknowledge of God the Father. Of course, that doesn't mean just God's predictive ability, that somehow God knew who were going to choose Christ and then chose them on the basis of their choice of Christ. That foreknowledge is talking about knowing us intimately, before the foundation of the world. In his sovereign plan, choosing us to know us by his grace alone and bring us into intimate relationship with himself. And he made that decision before the world began. Peter says, remember that. The Father's foreknowledge is the basis of your election. We know that Peter means that, not some watered-down version of of predicting the future, because in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He uses them almost as synonyms. The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, they go together. God planned to know you intimately. He chose you based upon his sovereign will alone, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. And then secondly, Peter refers to the sanctification of the Spirit. Based on that plan of the Father, the Spirit sets us apart. 
makes us holy, makes us different, makes us exiles, makes us aliens. That's the work of the Spirit, is to transform us from within so that we don't fit into the world anymore. And then the whole purpose of it, he says, is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And with that last phrase, he brings in the foundation of all of it. The Holy Spirit makes us obedient to Christ as our king of our kingdom that we serve in in this foreign land. The Spirit does that work based upon the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. And when the Old Testament people talked about sprinkled blood, they, they, immediately to their minds came Moses sprinkling the blood on the people. And the priests sprinkling the blood on the altar to give evidence that atonement has been made, that God and man are now at one. That reconciliation has happened because the wrath of God against our sins has been paid for completely. That a substitute, a perfect substitute has died in our place so that we can be forgiven. And so there in that that phrase where he ties in the Trinity and the saving work of Christ, he gives the basis of our election. Why are we chosen? Because of what Christ has done for us through the work of the Spirit by the plan of the Father. You see the importance of this. We're getting back to identity. It's about who you are. You need to dwell upon that daily. This idea of being chosen by God, of being elect according to God's sovereign plan is not some doctrine you learn in catechism class or something that you you learn somewhere along in your theological or leadership training and then you put on the shelf. It's something you're to think about every day. I'm a chosen one. I'm elect based on the work of Christ. God foreknew me before the foundation of the world. What a great foundation for your identity as an alien in this world. Because I guarantee when you walk out of your front door and you walk through your neighborhood, you're being measured. When you walk into your workplace and you start walking through the cubicles at your workplace, you're being measured. When you go to school and you sit down in your classroom, you're being measured by everyone around you, by the world. And what measuring sticks do they use? How good looking are you? How smart are you? What's your education level? What's your pay grade? What's your personality? You get it all day long. And you come here and you hear the Word of God and the Word of God says to you, you're the chosen ones. You're the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the source of your identity. That's what's going to make you stand out. Because when everybody out there is is trying to measure up according to all these different standards of the world, you don't have to measure up. Christ measures up and He's done all the work for you. The second way in which we are foreign in the world in which we live is, Peter says, our nature is foreign. Our nature is foreign. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's huge to your understanding of yourself. I'm born again. Peter understood this. Peter identifies himself in the very first word of this letter, I'm Peter. He didn't say that lightly because that wasn't the name he was born with. Jesus gave him the name Peter. He says, your name shall be the rock. Peter wasn't a rock when he got the name. But Jesus made him a rock. 
Peter understood what it meant to have a new nature. The difference between you and all of the unbelievers around you is that you have been born twice and they've only been born once. And that makes a dramatic difference in who you are. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, How do I get into your kingdom? How do I serve you as king? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Every day you need to understand that God has given you a new nature. You cannot be satisfied the way you used to be satisfied before you were born again. Oh yes, we still have those desires. Yes, sins still bring us pleasure. But that's the beauty of the Christian life. That's what, you know, we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit applying the finished work of Christ to us. That's what, that's what it's all about. It's teaching us to feed our new nature. If you're born again, you have desires to be holy. If you're born again, you have desires to please God. If you're born again, you have desires to extend the kingdom. These are things that are inborn through your, through your second birth, your new nature. And the joy of sanctification, the joy of, of, of the Christian life is learning that, you know, those things that used to satisfy me don't satisfy me anymore. When I compare my desire to know Christ and my desire to commit sin, that's the beauty of the, of the growth in Christian life is that all of a sudden my desire for sin grows less and less. My desire for holiness grows more and more. Those tastes are changing. They're different. By God's grace, we have a new heart. We have new desires. We have new goals. We have new vision. A few years ago, I had the privilege of being able to visit the nation of Turkey, which, and I visited some of the same areas to which Peter wrote this letter. And when I went to Turkey, I, I'm a coffee lover. I, I drink coffee every day. I love coffee. It's one of my joys in life. But Turkish coffee should never be drunk. I don't know if you've ever had it, but it's, it's half battery acid and half grounds. That's what you get in a cup when you order Turkish coffee. And, you know, so when I was there, it was one of the many ways in which I realized I'm an alien. I'm a foreigner here. I don't belong. I don't have a taste for their coffee. It boggles my mind that they have a taste for their coffee. But that's not the way, you know, that, that to me that was such an illustration to me of what it means to be a Christian in a foreign world. The things, the new tastes that God has given me for the kingdom, they don't fit in with the world anymore. I don't desire the things that they desire like I used to. Less and less every year by God's progressive grace. And the things that really satisfy my new nature become sweeter and sweeter, more pleasurable, more fulfilling year by year. By God's grace. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to taste of the fruits of the spirit of salvation. And so our nature is different. If you're really born again, you're going to stand out because your desires, your nature, what you want, what you live for, your purposes, your agenda in life is different. Thirdly, Peter tells us not only 
Not only is our source of identity foreign to this world, not only is our nature foreign to this world, but he says our hope is foreign to this world. Peter goes on to say that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to see that hope is a very strong theme in this letter. Hope is what gets us through life in this fallen world. When I was 30 and I would have pains, if I'd sprain an ankle or wake up with some back pain or have a bad headache or, you know, if I got sick, it didn't ever really concern me too much because I was young and in my experience up to that point, every time you got sick, every time you got hurt, wait a little while, you get better. I'm not there anymore. As I get older, I'm finding out, and actually every time I get a new pain, every time I get some new form of suffering in my physical being, I get nervous, I get concerned. Am I going to have to live with this the rest of my life now? Is this just another burden to add to my life? And, you know, honestly, if you're not born again, if you're not part of the kingdom, I don't know how you live without the hope that this life is not all there is, that the slow physical decline is not... A descent towards nothingness. My hope is not in my physical well-being. My fo- hope is not